Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Literary Studies, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Natalia shpulova Said, host on the channel. Today we will be talking with Dr. Danilenko, professor at Pace University in New York, Research Associate at Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, editor and author of several books on Slavic linguistics and philology. Dr. Danilenko is also editor of a new series in Langston Books, Studies in Slavic, Baltic and Eastern European Languages and Cultures. Today we will be talking about Dr. Danilenko's recent book From the Bible to Shakespeare, Pantelimon Kulish and the Formation of Literary Ukrainian, which was published by Academic Studies Press in 2016. Hello, Andriy. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, thank you for joining us today. I would like to start with the cover of the book, which can be read at different levels and from different perspectives. Uh, it includes some fragmentary lines from Kulish's translated works, and these fragments not only hint at those investigations that you offer with your publication, but um, um, those also concisely present changes that the Ukrainian language underwent through its formation. For those who study um, Ukrainian, for example, it would be interesting to examine orthographical and lexical choices that Kulish makes. What I mean here is accents uh, with which some words are provided, lexical and grammatical and spelling forms, which today um, could be considered um, archaic. Could you please tell us about the history and background um, of this publication? Uh, first of all, Natalia, thank you very much for inviting me just to, well, to speak about this book. Because as you understand, that's a part of my life, part of my several years of work, right? And um, you're right, when you look at the book and you see this uh, uh, cover, honestly, if you tell the truth, I spent some time just looking and searching for something which can represent uh, clearly what Kulish is or what Kulish represented at that time. And I was so lucky just to find this uh, photo, which basically you can just find in some archives in Ukraine, which is a combination of his uh, Cossack uh, background with this uh, look for some European uh, future, for example. And I try just, by the way, combine this picture, this wonderful photo. Actually, that's a photo of his, mm-hmm. a real photo, uh, with a couple of, uh, uh, well, copies of uh, his manuscripts. And you're right when you saw that his manuscripts are so interesting because all these letters, all these words have some accents which is untypical for, honestly. And he, all his life, used just to write with accents, not just because he was not sure how to pronounce it, but because he was sure that you need to know how to pronounce it exactly, because he was working on his specific, for example, literary standard of Ukrainian, and he was introducing not only words, not only grammar, but also how to say it correctly. And that's just wonderful. And by the way, on the cover, I placed a couple of pages from his translations of Shakespeare together with the Bible, if I'm not mistaken. That was just 
it seems that there was a good solution that was just also given a guidance by some editors at the publishing house. Mm-hmm. Uh, why Kulish, by the way? Uh, in Ukraine, some of his works are well known, and uh, but his uh, uh, translation activity, to which your uh, publication is dedicated, uh, remains some area of uh, inquiries, probably only for scholars. Um, and I would say that his presence in a popular segment could be <laughs> uh, could be better. Uh, well, what about uh, his uh, figure um, in the West? Uh, is he well known? Well, I wouldn't say that. So, could you uh, please give us like a very brief description of uh, his persona and his figure as a translator and as a writer? Well, uh, well, honestly, it seems to me that they don't know Kulish not only in the West because I was so naive, and to tell you the truth, some ten years ago, I knew practically nothing about Kulish, and I did a mistake which sometimes we do, and uh, I can tell you that I'm a mature scholar, okay? But I started working on a book and started just writing an introduction Mm. to this book. Mm. And uh, when writing an introduction, I wanted just to write a history of uh, literary Ukrainian, just covering several centuries, and then I suddenly realized, okay, listing all these figures in the introduction, I realized I know nothing about Pantelemon Kulish as a writer, as a public figure, and something else. And I told myself, listen, first of all, that's a mistake. Never write an introduction to a book which you have not (laughs) completed. And I told myself, okay, do they know something about Kulish? In Ukraine, yes, they already know about him. But in the West, it seems to me as he's an obscure figure this far, I, I know only one and I mentioned it in my book, and only one monograph, which was published in 1983 by George Lutsky in Canada, with a wonderful survey. It was just a sketch of his life and literary works. Wonderful introduction into what I can just call studies of police. And basically, we, we know something, yes, in the West about police, but not enough definitely about his language, because it's, it's, it's quite an important element, for example, in dealing with the culture of Ukrainians, right? That's language. And what they were doing, what they just, for example, contributed to this in the 19th century, and Pantelemon Kulish, one of the most, well, significant, let's put it like, figures in the 19th century in Ukraine, in both Russian-ruled Ukraine, right? And also in Galicia, what we just call, for example, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. It was a kind of a bridge between these two parts of Ukraine, and his presence in this Landschaft is is astounding. And uh, you have just, just simply to look into, even if you deal with the Slavic studies, um, dealing with, for example, Islamic Russia, even Russia, if you're especially in Russia, you have to know something about Pantelimon Kulich, because he was a fixture in these, uh, for example, cultural, as I told you, landscapes in both uh, the Russian and Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Was he bi- bilingual? Uh, he spoke Russian and Ukrainian? Some other languages as well. Luckily, it looks like he was monolingual at the very oh. beginning. As a true Ukrainian, yes, he used to speak Ukrainian to his parents, 
too well to his neighbors because that was just a small, let's put like this, a village or something where they lived. Uh, but he learned Russian. He learned Russian because he was just a citizen, okay, of the Russian Empire, and he was just to some extent just obligated just to learn the language because if you want to make a career, if you have, if you need just to make some advancement, right, you just need the language. And he was so gifted and talented that he learned this Russian language to the extent that he became first like a writer in the Russian language, because mm -hmm. his first literary works were written in Russian, because he wanted just to become a writer, writing in the Russian language. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically he was good uh, in Russian, but by the way, it's extremely interesting just to look into his Russian and to find some Ukrainianisms in this language, and you can find that. But it was business as usual, I think, in the 19th century with all the writers of Russian. Is this case, well, the the question is a little bit off the topic, is this case a little bit similar to Gogol, or, or the situation is a little bit different? Uh, well, I think that perhaps to some extent you can just juxtapose him with a Gogol or Hogel, um, but I wouldn't say that they are compatible in this case, mm -hmm. because uh, Kolish was... Uh, conscious he was aware of these problems he was taking over by himself. He was doing this consciously. In, in the case of Gogol, it seems to me that was just something quite subconscious in uh, the figure of Gogol. For Kulish, it was just simply a matter of uh, his life. He was not giving up. Uh, he was working, changing his views and doing something differently as, for example, was done by Gogol. And uh, honestly, I'm not a great specialist in literary studies, and for this, in this case, perhaps I'm not the authority to tell you something about Gogol competing with uh, Gulish. But it seems to me that's different. That's different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, would you um, yeah, tell us a little bit about his translation background? Uh, was he a professional translator? Well, uh, the uh, the term of a professional translator probably is quite modern. But still, did did he have some profound background in um, English, for example, uh, or in any other language that he was um, somehow uh, incorporating in his translations? Uh, what was his uh, um, education, so to speak, in terms of translate, uh, translation uh, practice? Uh, well, that was his, uh, at the very beginning, it was his hobby. Mm -hmm. uh, because he, according to some attestations, he, was, he didn't want to translate, because according to him, translating something would not be beneficial uh, for the development of a new standard of uh, literary Ukrainian because it would interfere into the texture, into the nature of this language. But subconsciously, I think that he was thinking about this definitely for years and uh, in some letters later, when he was already in his late 20s, for example, he wrote that, yes, I'm thinking about translating these classical works into Ukrainian because it would benefit, it would help us somehow create a new standard. And uh, he was a gifted uh, person, yes, and he was a wonderful linguist, I guess, because he learned English uh, 
uh, well, from, as we call this textbooks, yes, uh, on his own, he also mastered it to be sufficiently French and German because he was using some um, works in uh, biblical studies which were written in German. And for this case, he was just simply, it was an indis indispensable part of his scholarship, let's put it like this. Uh, I also know, just according to some sources, that he used to take some lessons of Hebrew with uh, Boudouin de Courtenay, who was at that time a very, very young scholar, but later he became one of the greatest structuralists in uh, Slavic linguistics, and especially in Poland, uh, and uh, at that time in the Russian Empire. So, let's put it like this. He was highly versified and he was a master of several languages which would help him, I mean Pantelimon Kulish, make these wonderful translations from English and from other languages, including for example Greek with the help definitely of some of his friends and colleagues, but still he was he was he was good at this, honestly. He was a prepared translator. So, what was uh, his incentive to uh, um, complete uh, this, these uh, translations which you discuss in your uh, book? So, uh, in what way uh, we, uh, were they useful for the formation of U literary Ukrainian? Well, let's put it like this, something uh, like there was no literary Ukrainian mm -hmm. in the 19th century. We had writers, but the language did not exist. So you can just call that it was just kind of a written variety of the language which was used by some people living in the deeper part of Ukraine, which was a Russian ruled, and also in the second historical part, which was Austrian-Hungarian ruled. So for Kulish, it was just a wonderful moment because he realized, I can create something new and I have to work diligently on this. It was extremely challenging, extremely difficult for him. And he wanted just, by the way, his choice of the Bible and Kulish was not just simply random because he realized that you, for, a, for a new language, for a literary standard, you have to create both the high style in, for example, biblical text, and also kind of a high style in a circular text. So he was just simply determined, intended to combine these two, well, facets or two faces of one and the same standard, which can be used in the 19th century by Ukrainians. And this is why he just decided just to combine the Bible with Shakespeare, and Shakespeare is the best representative mm -hmm. of classical literature in the West. Well, yes, uh, I have this uh, quote from your um, uh, from your book about um, what uh, uh, about uh, how Kulish uh, uh, understood Shakespeare. Um, Kulish called Shakespeare our father, native to all people, and the greatest warrior from among the intellectuals, imploring him to take under the protection the unworthy Ukrainian people who lost in the steppes were still praising the Cossack spirit and helped them thereby to get rid of their barbarism. 
So could you um, elaborate on this statement? Was it uh, something that was connected with the status of the language or um, Kulish was also hoping to, um, to implement some ideas and some morals taken from Shakespeare's works? Uh, it seems to me that he came to understand uh, this, well, kind of a contradiction in his, uh, well, in treatment of uh, the Ukrainian past. At some point later, I mean, when he was perhaps in the his 40s or 50s, when he, by the way, um, was obsessed with some works by the German literary and social historian uh, Georg uh, Gottfried Gerlinus, who was an authority in uh, the studies of Shakespeare, when uh, Kulish realized that Shakespeare is something which is all human. Mm-hmm. If you're speaking about, well, that's a kind of a positivism. If you're speaking about all human values, you have to reassess what you belong to, what your roots are, and how you can just combine, for example, these humankind with your vision of your village, of your town and city, of your people. And he just simply started just to, well, to look perhaps differently at the history of uh, Ukraine, in particular the so-called myth of uh, the Cossack uh, movement of the Cossack contribution to the development of Ukrainian history. And he realized that For example, as compared with Shakespeare, with his all human values, the Cossacks would achieve nothing as compared with Shakespeare, according to him, because they would bring only destruction, and he definitely meant, for example, the war against uh, uh, the Civil War, yes, which, well, uh, took place in 1648, right? And some years later in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, according to, for example, to some Polish historians, definitely the Ukrainians were behind the, well, collapse of the state. So he realized that you have just to look differently at these Cossack myths. You have just to reassess it. And it's a good when you're reassessing, trying just to give another interpretation of the past. And that was just something which some of his friends and colleagues and uh, people living in the 19th century in Ukraine, they did not like, definitely, when he spoke about destruction rather than creativity on the part of the Ukrainian Cossacks. So, um, does it somehow contribute to his controversy? Uh, you um, mentioned a couple of times in your, investi- in, your, in your publication that he was a very controversial figure. So, does this controversy uh, stem from his uh, um, position as... As, as a representative who speaks both languages, Ukrainian, Russian, or does this uh, controversy um, stem from uh, his idea of how the Ukrainian language uh, should, deve- should develop? Well, uh, sure, yes, he was a, an extremely controversial sometimes, and his whole life, definitely, that's just simpler a series, a chain of some activities and, uh, well, steps which would just simply amaze you and would, for example, just would leave somebody very, very unhappy. Uh, well, don't forget that, for example, he 
was obsessed. He was a friend over the national poet of the national prophet of Ukrainians, Taras Shevchenko. They were together in some, well, well, they were together ideologically, creatively, and then suddenly, already, it seems to me, after the death, definitely of Shevchenko, uh, suddenly, uh, Pantelimon Kulish uh, debunked, okay, the the authority of Taras Shevchenko in his three-volume uh, work entitled Historia Bosoidinenia Rusi, which is the history of the reunification of Rus, and at the same time debunking the myth, debunking the positive creativity of Taras Shevchenko, he praised, for example, uh, the Russian Tsar, including Peter I and Catherine II. Then suddenly, for example, he was a friend, he had lots of Polish friends, and at the same time he blamed the Polish nationalists, for example, for having caused the uprising in eight, of 1863-1864. Okay, so you have friends, at the same time you're just simply against, at the very beginning against Russian uh, chauvinism, let's put it like this, and at the same time you praised the Russian Tsar. And also it's a very interesting moment in his life, he served at some moment for several years, it seems to me for three years, in the Russian Office of Spiritual Affairs in Warsaw. Basically, he was in charge of some kind of spiritual censorship. Mm. And he was dealing with these affairs, with these spiritual problems, let's put it like this, on a regular basis in Warsaw. And we believe that he would take the position of the Russian administration, actually. And that was the case. But on the other case, on the other side, excuse me, he also published several pamphlets appealing to Ukrainian-Polish understanding. So he was aware of this, well, friction and tension in uh, this relationship. So he was going from one point to another, from one pole to another pole. But only fools do not change their views. And he was a very smart person. He was constantly searching for truth. He was just trying to find solution to all these many problems faced by many Ukrainians, by the way, in the 19th century. So your um, um, book is very detailed and very meticulous in terms of providing not only historical facts, but uh, linguistic analysis of uh, Kulish's uh, language. Uh, how would you describe his language, just in the, maybe in a few words, because I know it's a, probably a very um, interesting and a very complex uh, topic, and um, as your uh, book uh, demonstrates, it's uh, well, it will probably take a couple of hours to um, discuss all those changes, but just for us to uh, get that sense uh, how he approached the Ukrainian language and what he implemented into the Ukrainian language and uh, um, what was his uh, um, direction for, for the further development. Just maybe, maybe even um, a couple of um, examples would be useful for this, <laughs> for this conversation. Honestly, uh, when a student, for example, I would uh, put aside if I come across some writings by Kulisha sign, because I would not, it doesn't mean that I would not understand his writing, but I would not just simply accept them because I was trained uh, 
based on a kind of a canon, yes, paradigm of uh, our literary standard, which is, let's put it like this, vernacular-oriented. It means you don't use in your standard some high-style, for example, elements and uh, fragments and components, uh, which, for example, existed perhaps in the history of your language. But you're right now obsessed with something which is very simple, which is very commonly used by all people. Uh, Kulish was different, absolutely. That's why perhaps we were not very happy when reading his text. But when you start analyzing and reading not only his text, but also his translations, first of all, because translation, that's a possibility to declare clearly your standing, to declare your language program, where everything is condensed and you can prove and show what this language should be in the future. And his general idea, well, it's definitely difficult to explain because he was going through so many years and decades of his work, right? Creating this language program and language idea is very complex, let's put it like this. That's a combination of our synthetic vision of the language from the point of view of its time and space. For him, the language used by Ukrainians should be based on the legacy of uh, what we call Old Kievan rule, which is starting approximately with the 12th, 13th century. This is why you can find in his text lots of bookish words and elements which at first sight seem out of place or belong to some other languages, but not to Ukrainian. Some of them are the so-called church Slavonic forms. Some forms, you can just tell me that, for example, the word vozduch, which is, you will tell me that, which is the Russian word, right, yes. But according to Polish, vozduch also belonged to Ukrainian because it was introduced, let's put it like this, somewhere in the 15th century. It was used in some middle Ukrainian text. Why should you give up your word, your element, only because it was appropriated later by the speakers of Russia? And also from the point of view of space, he was obsessed, well, he was oriented toward a kind of a synthesis of a different, let's put it like these dialects, yes, used by Ukrainians. It doesn't mean that he would take something from this dialect, from that dialect, pick up enough something which is used in Galicia and then move it just simply automatically, mechanically to deeper Ukraine, no. He was screening for something which is typical of Ukrainians. He could find some dialectal or regional elements which you can double check and you can find them also in the previous history or in the history of Ukraine, which were used, for example, in the 14th or 17th century. And right now they are, for example, viewed as some dialect elements, but in fact not. So it seems to me that George Shevelov was the first to call Kulish the greatest synthesizer of different styles and, uh, well, regional elements in his language program, because definitely Kulish was just trying just to bridge different layers in the history of Ukraine and different, for example, territories in the language which was used at in the 19th century. So he was, as I told you, an extremely complex 
it was an extremely complex vision of the language, and this is why perhaps they did like it. <laughs> so neither, for example, the propounders over, for example, over Ukrainian idea in uh, the Russian-ruled part of Ukraine, and uh, neither other people in Galicia and on the other side of the neighbor. So let's put it like this. Mm -hmm. So nobody would take him seriously. Let's put it like this on at face value. Later, definitely, they would, well, debate, they would find something extremely positive about his, for example, contribution and his literary output. Yeah, uh, the um, yeah the picture that uh, you describe uh, in this in this book uh, is very dynamic in terms of um, collaboration of different translators or in different writers and in terms of the vision of the Ukrainian language. Uh, and it's interesting how the language ultimately uh, took. Um, one direction, uh, other than taking, for example, a different direction. So, um, <clears throat> I guess uh, what um, I'm interested in is um, uh, how other Kulish's contemporaries uh, contributed to the development of the Ukrainian language, because um, at the very end of your book, um, you state uh, the following, and I would like to um, <clears throat> to read this quote. So, quote, um, his, meaning Kulish's, uh, was a completely alternative program that, being in, uh, compatible with the vernacular trends cultivated in Austrian and Russian-ruled Ukraine, was doomed. Today, one can only guess at the detours that literary Ukrainian would have made had Kulish's language program prevailed, end of quote. So, um, what uh, other directions uh, were taking place while Kulish was uh, completing his translations, and um, how um, how did they contribute to the formation of that literary Ukrainian that we probably have today? Why um, uh, why the Kulish's alternative uh, didn't find its way into the Ukrainian, for example, uh, society? Well, just honestly, when I finished the book, I came up with this idea, and I could not go into detail in explaining uh, what kind of language program he has. Because, okay, when discussing his translations, well, his use of different language component uh, elements, how he was switching from one style to another register to another register. It was good, yes. I, I'm aware of all these intricacies of his language, but still, how you can just define exactly his language program, that's extremely difficult, actually. And right now I've finished an article uh, where I try just to expose only, like, a, well, a structure of his program. But in, in a nutshell, the the problem in the 19th century for Ukrainians was the following. You had, in fact, two varieties, well, roughly speaking, right? Two varieties of uh, the read language, put it like this, Austrian and Hungarian ruled Ukraine and the other in Russian ruled Ukraine. In Russian ruled Ukraine, everybody was oriented and based, let's put it like this, on vernacular. Everything would go only in this direction. And all writers, all, for example, visions of new language was based on the understanding of very simple or, let's put it like a plain language, which we can call vernacular. 
In Galicia, or Austrian ruled and Hungarian ruled Ukraine, the situation was different. Because the defenders of the national identity, including the written language, were clerics, were priests. And if you're a priest, whatever you say, whatever you try just to convey to your parishioners, you always remember the high style language which you were trained, yes, which you learned when you got this education. Old Church Slavonic or Church Slavonic. That's the language which is your language and which you try to use when treating or when dealing with your parishioners. They realized that the parishioners were not very happy with these language because it was too tough for them to understand them. And they were still just trying to simply, okay, to implement, just to add some elements. But the general idea that the, well, ethnically speaking, the Ukrainians in Austria and Hungary, Hungary, they were just simply using the language which was oriented and based on church Slavonic. Kulish was in between. He was sandwiched between these two visions and two paradigms, and he did not accept neither vernacular-based paradigm nor, for example, church Slavonic-based paradigm. Whatever kind of church Slavonic we speak, let it be just Ukrainian recension. Let it be just simply 60% vernacular elements in these church Slavonic, but still, this is church Slavonic language. So Kulish just simply tried just to synthesize, let's put it like this, everything which belonged to both Peridante and even more beyond these. And these beyondness just did not, they did not like it. Because speaking as I told you about the Kievan rules, so these times of old rules, how can you just speak about the 12th century and use it in your, for example, translation? Ivan Franco, the greatest writer in, for example, the western part of Ukraine, would not accept it. He would blame Kulish for using a strange, distorted, oldish, bookish language which nobody would understand. And this is it. And you can just find some people in uh, the Russian ruled part of Ukraine who would also tell you. How is it possible in our village we don't use this language? We do not understand, but it's so naive that you are you are not supposed to use the language which is used in your village. Mm -hmm. Whatever you claim, whatever you want to defend by telling this. And Kulish was just simply, as I told you, uh, the first synthesizer, the first person who would like just to bridge these parts of Ukraine in his intrinsic and his idiosyncratic vision, which unfortunately was not accepted, was not promoted by, uh, well, Ukrainians. Because some, to some extent, Kulish was too late when he finished, when he explicitly explained what he wanted, and he was too early when he started speaking about this. So he lost perhaps his moment and uh, it was just simply chronologically perhaps contradiction in his uh, vision. But also do not forget that the Ukrainian idea was promoted by those who were oriented, who were based on this vernacular idea in everything, not only in language, but also in literature, not only in literature, but in the intellectual life of everybody who were just simply thinking and defending the Ukrainian idea.
Mm-hmm. So, um, would it be correct to say that Kulish wasn't following any standards while translating or while writing in um, in his in his language, in his version of the Ukrainian language? Um, what I mean here is that you just uh, described that uh, um, there are different dialects, there are different versions, and he was creating his uh, his own. Uh, however, uh, I remember there was one part in your uh, book where you speak about about his reaction uh, to um, how his contemporaries responded to his translations. And one of the reactions was very negative, and he ultimately uh, burned one of his translations and burned one of, uh, of the versions of his translations. Um, but um, um, again, uh, as you described, um, his uh, language is very complex and it's multi-layered and it's very diverse. Uh, and uh, how um, um, how was he translating uh, if he was playing with all these elements? And uh, if we can take uh, this kind of angle... Uh, do you think that there is at least one translation that you would describe as very successful? Um, well, I would describe all his translations uh, very successful <laughs> because you cannot just take in one translation from uh, the chain of translations mm-hmm. because all these translations, they are steps, yes, mm-hmm. in uh, the crystallization of your language, of your translation studies vision, how you treat these different, for example, texts, how you translate. You cannot just simply grasp this, oh, that's good or that's not very good. No. Mm-hmm. You, you have just to, dip, to, to look into the process itself, right? And to look into the progress of his translations. And uh, Honestly, honestly, the climax of his uh, translation program, let's put it like this, I would call a very interesting <laughs> product, which it seems to me uh, no nation has ever produced. Perhaps they will come up with this. The point is that when he finished translating the bulk of uh, okay, the New Testament, the Old Testament, together with his friends, together with his colleagues, because not only with Ivan Pulu, but also with Ivan Nechul-Levitsky, who contributed to this translation, he realized that that's not the, the level which you need. He looked beyond this. And you would not believe it, he created a kind of, he started working on a versified translation of the Bible. So he, he was aware of this distinction of prose and versified translations in the Old Testament. He knew clearly what books are written in prose, what books are written in poetic, for example, version. He didn't care about this. He just realized that you, if you want to bring the word of God to your nation, to your people. In addition to this biblical style, high style, you have to make it so transparent, so close and friendly to them, that he decided to translate everything in verse. Not only those books, as we know, for example, which were written in poetic style, that the language is poetic. No, no. He wanted to create everything, and he started uh, translating. And if I'm not mistaken, he translated two books 
mostly most of them that's the beginning of Old Testament. Uh, the manuscripts and the different versions, even varieties of these translations, are kept right now at the Chernihiv Museum, uh, uh, and they have all papers and they have, they have all uh, drafts. They have all these translations uh, of Kulish uh, at this museum, and I took some photos. I made some copies, by the way, of some uh, chapters of this, and I can tell you that this is not. A true, but this is not a typical Ukrainian poetry. Mm -hmm. It's it's something which sounds very and reads as something very friendly and simple, plain. But on the other side, it's sublime because he combines not only folkloric, not only folk song elements or something like which might be very friendly, but also he introduces introduces surreptitiously unconsciously says perhaps sometimes some elements which belong to for example previous as i told you layers in the history of ukrainian but still it's it's something which unfortunately we we do not know yet we did not edit this we did not prepare these manuscripts for publication but in the future since uh, members of this team working within uh, the Kritika project together with Harvard University on the complete collection, yes, of Kulish's works. We, and I belong to this team, we think about preparing this uh, manuscript and preparing this versified translation, which would be just simply a kind of, a, well, a boom in literary studies and in translation studies and uh, in uh, well, in Ukrainian linguistics in general. Well, um, uh, is Kulish's translation activity included into some like theoretical courses on Ukrainian translation studies? Well, that's a good question, but unfortunately, do not teach as you understand mm -hmm. in Ukraine. So far as I know, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, they publish some negative uh, views of uh, translation output of Kulish, and specifically in, unfortunately, in uh, the western part of Ukraine, because they do not think that it might be implemented and might become part of uh, serious translation studies courses. In the literature of translation studies, definitely they use it, definitely, they analyze it. Mm -hmm. But again, how can you screen the text if you have already your standard of Ukrainian of literary Ukrainian, definitely you would not accept it because, as I told you, that was the third program which was not implemented, which was not accepted by neither the East or West in Ukraine. But I think that Kulish uh, does not belong to simply to the past of translation studies. He belongs to the future <laughs> of translation studies. And I think that they would use him as an example of uh, an extremely creative uh, work which was constantly, consciously done by Kulish over the years, over the entire of his life, because he was a translator for all his life long. So, in other words, uh, we can say that Kulish wasn't uh, uh, just a translator, but he was an artist 
who would use translation for creating uh, a new language or a language which is based on some fluidity and uh, some um, some uh, some elements that constantly change and uh, transform and um, modify uh, each other. Oh yes, you're right, and when you when you. <laughs> You can treat him as an artist, yes, he was an artist. And this is why perhaps he loved translating, in addition to his original works, which, well, he definitely, he was a writer, he was a poet, he was a journalist, he was a first professional Ukrainian writer and journalist, by the way. He earned his living from his writing, yes, uh, articles, essays, reviews, and so on, so on. But he was a true artist of this and this is why perhaps he loved translation so much because you it's like just simply experimenting on a regular basis with a language you cannot experiment like this in your original work mm-hmm. believe me because mm-hmm. it's something very very you think about publication yes who would take it for publication but when you're translating that's for yourself that's for the future, that's for the benefit, for the sake of the whole nation which you work for. Because you would support this financially yourself, because as you remember, for example, he uh, his first, for example, publication of some translations of Shakespeare, he supported by himself. He financially just simply, I don't know how much he covered all these expenses, but he was aware of all these challenges and he was eager not only to translate, but also to finance, mm-hmm. yes, these projects, because he believed that his translations would be appreciated, would be screened from the point of view of the benefit and the future of the Ukrainian nations, nation. And he is right, actually, yes. And this is high time right now just to get back to his contribution and to place him in the context, not only of the creation of literary Ukrainian, but also in the context of creation of some other literary Slavic languages. Definitely, they have different roads, different paths, let's put it like this. And it's extremely interesting just perhaps to find some similar approaches, perhaps they have in some other cultures of Slavs. That's, for example, for the future, I hope that people uh, would uh, go in this direction, just trying just to project what was done by Kulish onto what you find in some other Slavic nations and cultures. Not only, for example, in such big cultures as Polish and Russian culture, because definitely they have different versions, different languages, which are based on different principles. But you can look around, you can look beyond these big, too big, for example, brothers, let's put it like this, of vernacular-oriented Ukrainian culture and language. Is your current project in any way connected with um, this Kulish's project? Well, to some extent, yes, because I am an editor of a volume or a couple of volume in this project, which I mentioned, of the publishing house Critica and Harvard University. We're working on Kulish's translations of Shakespeare. Also, I plan to edit and comment my own volume on some biblical translations. Mostly poetic, by the way, which I mentioned. That's that's my 
um, cup of tea for the future. But definitely, that's not all I have right now. That's only about Kulish, what I told you, because I have some other, uh, for example, plans. I just, by the way, submitted manuscript of a book to Mouton de Gruyter, which I edited together with a colleague from Japan, but which is not about Kulish, that's <laughs> about Slavic in the language map of Europe. That's about typological and aerial studies. So to some extent, Kulish, that's kind of a hobby. That's my, oh, that's, I will put it like this, that's my Ukrainian part of my uh, eye, because these aerial studies and Slavic in the language map of Europe, that's my, let's put it like this, American part of myself, because that's Slavic studies, that's different. But always I do remember how you can connect them and uh, I'm just trying just to reconnect the Slavic studies with Ukrainian language, with the Ukrainian culture and uh, everything which is connected as well to Kulish. Well, um, I wish you uh, good luck on these uh, new projects and uh, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation and thank you so much for your very meticulous, very detailed um, research which uh, gives an excellent idea of how the Ukrainian language was developing and how it could have uh, been developing at this point. And um, again, um, I greatly enjoyed your uh, publication and uh, it's not only um, a profoundly written It's uh, uh, very interesting to read uh, this book because there are yes. so many, there are so many characters <laughs> that um, yes. uh, you learn uh, about. Thank so. you very much for having me today, and I think that we have just we together by joint efforts can spread the words about good words, positive words about Kulish, about the Ukrainian language, and about this wonderful culture which is part of world culture and civilization, and we have to look into together in the future, likewise. So today we were uh, talking with uh, Dr. Nelenko about his publication From the Bible to Shakespeare, Pantelimon Kulish and Defamation of Literary Ukrainian. Uh, thank you so much uh, for listening to New Books in Literary Studies. <laughs>